Hey there, this is Daniel, lead pastor of Christ City, Surrey. I pray that this sermon would be used by God in conjunction with you belonging to a local church. If you're not part of a local church, let me invite you to join us. We gather each Sunday at 16126 93A Avenue in Surrey for worship, word, and sacrament. If you want to be a part of or hear more about what we believe God has called us to, you can visit ChristCityChurch.ca. I hope that what you're about to hear expands your joy and leads you to fall more in love with Jesus. Today's scripture is Exodus chapter 3, verse 16 through chapter 4, verse 9. Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. And they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of Hebrews, has met with us. And now let us go a three days' journey into the wilderness, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, Throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, Put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground, and the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Uh, This morning, we're continuing our series in the book of Exodus. And thus far, up to this point, um, God has just appeared to Moses. Last week, God appeared to Moses and said, Moses, I want you to go. It's actually through you that I'm going to lead my people, Israel, out of Egypt. And so what we have now, in many ways, uh, is the stage being set for a battle. There's going to be a battle between the God of Israel, Yahweh, and the ruler of Egypt, Pharaoh, and his mighty armies. The greatness of Yahweh against the greatness of Pharaoh. And so we, we see, actually, in verse 18, what, what Moses is supposed to do. Look at verse 18 again of chapter 3 says, and they will listen to your voice. You and the elders shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him, the Lord, 
the God of the Hebrews has met with us, and now please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Moses, this is what I want you to do. You and the elders, go go to the king of Egypt, go to Pharaoh, and tell them that you need to sacrifice to me. And in order to do that, you you have to head on out into the wilderness a a three days journey. Now, please, please, please listen. Um, Because I think we're tempted to believe that this ancient practice of sacrifice is, is dated and irrelevant and doesn't really have any bearing on our lives today, which is not true. I actually think sacrifice back then in the ancient world and sacrifice as we speak of it today, sacrifice, making sacrifice, sacrificing yourself for something are, are actually very similar. Um, let, let, me, let, me, let me look at it this way. Sacrifice is a declaration of trust and worship. Sacrifice is a declaration of trust and worship. So so let me read you the very first sacrifice ever, okay? Genesis 3 says this. might not immediately be apparent as a sacrifice, but but it is. Look, Look at this, Genesis 3. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Adam and Eve here have just committed the first ever sin. And as a result of that sin, they now feel shame and guilt, whereas before, the Bible tells us, they were naked and unashamed. They felt like they had nothing to hide. All of a sudden, they feel this burden of condemnation upon them. And so what they do is they run away from God and they hide from him. They feel shame. They feel their unworthiness. And so what does God do? God, in his mercy, clothes them. He he makes clothes from them from the skins of animals. And if you're going to make clothes out of animal skins, you first need to sacrifice that animal. That's the first sacrifice ever. And so what is the sacrifice? What, What is the animal? The animal is a trusted means by which Adam and Eve would hide their shortcomings, return their self of worth, and in hopes of maybe being accepted by God. Sacrifice is an act of trust. But because it's an act of trust, it's also at the same time a declaration of worship. That that word worship um, that we use today comes from two English words, worth and ship. That, that's how it originated. It, it's a worthy ship. So, so you can trust it, right? You, you trust it because it's worthy and you, you praise it because of its worth. It, it's, it's dependable. The same, the same principles, okay, then, then apply today when, when we offer our own sacrifices. So when we make sacrifices for our jobs, we work overtime, we work hard, we work long hours, in hopes of we might work our way up in the company, right? In hopes that we might make a name for ourselves, in hopes that we might secure a promotion and that promotion might guarantee us certain privileges in the future, might be a source of security for us, right? We we make sacrifices because we believe our job is worth it. Or we make sacrifices for the love of our family and children. 
We, we sacrifice other loves. We, we forgo other hobbies because we believe that their affection, the love we would receive from them, the time with them is worth it. It's worthwhile. Or we make sacrifices for the sake of our physical appearance, for example. All those, all those burpees we're putting in and hours in the gym where we're hoping that instead of being pushed away by someone, maybe they would actually be drawn to us. They, they might be attracted to us and we might be once again accepted. Sacrifices are trusts and acts of worship. Now, lots more can be said about sacrifice. We're going to see a very major sacrifice upcoming in the book of Exodus. But suffice for you to know now that when Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, hey, Pharaoh, we need to head on out because we need to make a sacrifice to Yahweh. What Moses is saying is, Pharaoh, there is one who is truly trustworthy, one who is truly worthy of worship, and it's not you. It's Yahweh. Oh, only God is great, Pharaoh. So three, three things I think we see in our text this morning. Three reasons why God is trustworthy. God is trustworthy because of his patience, He's trustworthy because of his provision, and he's trustworthy because of his power. First, God is trustworthy because of his patience, his patience. Look at verses 16 and 17 again. God's talking to Moses again and says, Go and gather the elders of Israel together and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I've observed you and what you have, what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites and the Hittites and the Amorites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, a land flowing with milk and honey. Um, this is not the first time God makes this promise to Israel to, to give them this land. Actually, the very first time we, we read of this promise comes all the way back in the book of Exodus, uh, book of Genesis, rather. Genesis chapter 15 says this. So on that day, this is God now speaking to Abram, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your offspring, I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. All the sites, you get their land. Now, okay, so this land belongs to someone. Um, God doesn't say, hey, look, actually, I'm going to give you this bit of land that's west of the Mediterranean Sea and east of the Jordan River. That's going to be your little plot of land. No, God actually says, look, I'm actually giving you the land of these people, other nations and, and tribes live there, and so you're going to have to displace them. There's going to be war. People are going to be killed. And God's saying, that's, that's what you're to do. I'm, I'm going to give you that land. Now, I, I recognize the, the, the challenges this, this brings with the way we, we might understand God. 
right? I could never believe in the God of the Bible, some, some would say. Who, who would do that? Who would allow for, for war to take place like this? It's just, it's just not fair. Um, I, what, what's important, I think, for, for us to know, though, is that this is not an act of cruelty by God. It's an act of justice. It's, it's an act of justice. Um, almost nobody would say that the world going to war against the Nazis was wrong, right? The Nazis committed genocide. They, they sought to wipe out an entire people group. They would uh, throw people in gas chambers and, and burn their bodies. And, and so, in, so go to, going to war was an act of justice. It sought to bring freedom to those people who were oppressed and, and going to be killed, now, as ugly as war is, Christians have once in a while said, look, there, there are rightful reasons to go to war, N- namely to protect others and to, to actually curb and stop forms of evil in this world. The same is true in God's act against all of these other peoples. It's an act of justice. So li- listen, to, listen to Deuteronomy 9.4. It is, this is God talking, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. I'm driving them out. I'm giving you their land, God says, because they're wicked. What wickedness? In in, in Leviticus 18, we have a list of their evil acts. Acts such as incest, adultery, rape, bestiality, ritual prostitution, and worst of all, child sacrifice. They would, just, they would just slaughter children and, and sacrifice them, often burning them alive, actually. And so God says, as an act of justice, because of their evil, I am sending them out of the land. The, these nations, these, these acts of evil should, should cease to exist. And so I, I'm giving you their land. But, but here, here's actually the, the main point I want us to see this morning. God does not do this right away. He doesn't. God doesn't do this right away. Actually, go back to Genesis 15. It'll be on the screen. Listen to this. Same section where God initially made this promise. He says, so they shall come back. He's talking about his offspring, Abraham's offspring. They shall come back here to this land in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God says, it's not time yet because the sin, the iniquity of these people is not yet complete. And so Israel is in Egypt for 400 years. 400 years of slavery, waiting patiently for God to give them this land he once promised them ages ago. God, are you, are you going to bring us into this land? No, no, not, not yet. Why not, God? How about, how about now? No, not yet. I'm waiting. Maybe the Amorites will turn from their evil. Maybe they'll stop their wicked ways. Okay, well, what about, what about now, God? It's been 300 years. No, not yet. Just, 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 just waiting a little longer. Maybe they'll repent. Maybe they'll, maybe they'll turn from their ways. And so God is patiently waiting, waiting and waiting for 400 years until finally God goes, okay, now is my time of justice. 
I've put up with this for 400 years. Now it is going to be absolutely undeniably clear that what I'm about to do, the judgment I'm about to bring on this nations, is just. And actually, the, the same thing in, in a smaller way, in a much shorter time frame, happens to Pharaoh. Right? So, so Pharaoh is given not one plague, not two, not three, not four, but nine opportunities to, to repent, to, to, to turn from his evil ways. So, so verse 19 says this. This is the way we have it in, in our ESV. This is the way the translators have tried to smooth it out. It, it reads this. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. If you, if you have, look at your little footnote at the bottom there of your, your Bibles, many of you will see it. the actually best translation that we have is, but I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go, not by a mighty hand. God's saying, look, look, I actually know, and I'm, I'm okay. I'm okay with giving Pharaoh nine opportunities, nine displays of mighty power. I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, I'm waiting, until finally I go, okay, enough is enough. Now my people need to go. Now my judgment needs to come. This is our God, a God who is patient, a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And who, who, who's patient like this? I mean, people, people sin against us. They do the same sin twice, and we're like, that's it. You are out of my life. Two, two is, is one too many. Obviously, this is a you problem, and you're not changing, and so you just be done. And yet the Lord is wait, waiting for 400 years. The, man, the sins we've committed... Man, there, there are sins that we thought we would be done with, that we, we dreamed and hoped we'd be done with long ago by now. There, there are certain sins that we told the Lord, God, okay, this, that time, that's the, that was the last time. And I'm sorry, only to have messed up again in it. And yet the Lord goes, I'm, not, I'm actually not going anywhere. I, I know that I sent my son Jesus to die for you, and that... And, and still you sin against me, but that's okay. You, you need to know I'm with you and I'm for you and I'm not abandoning you. One, one time, two times, a million times, you do the same sin over and over and over again. I'm still here. I'm not, I'm not leaving you. He's patient with us. And not just patient with the Christians, he's patient with the unbeliever too. God, God wooing people. If you're not a follower of Jesus, you need to know the Lord is patient with you. And he longs to have a relationship with you. And so he's, he's calling you to, your, him, you to himself again and again and again. And he'll wait and he'll wait and he waits because he wants to be with you. But, but there will be a time when his patience will end. There will be a time, just like there was a time with these other nations, where he goes, now my judgment comes into place. And you need to decide Whose merits are you going to stand on? Are you going to stand on your own merits? On what you've done? God will judge you for that. Or you go, I'm going to trust in the merits of Jesus, of, of someone else. 2 Peter 3 says this, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And count the patience of the Lord as salvation. 
Turn to God. Trust him. He's, he's patient like no other. Our God is trustworthy because he's patient. Our God is trustworthy because of his provision. Secondly, his provision. Uh, God doesn't just promise to save Israel from slavery. Um, that's, That's not enough for God. God's not content to bring his people out of oppression. Uh, He also wants to provide for them abundantly. He he wants to give them gifts. So so look at verse 17. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of of Egypt, right? I want to end your slavery. Of the Canaanites, I'm going to give you this land, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And he says, and this land is a land flowing with milk and honey. I want, I want to give you a, a good land. This language of um, a land flowing with milk, it's not like there was like a stream somewhere that had like milk bubbling out of it. That's, that's not the, the picture here. The, the picture here is that this is a land of, of green pastures. Right? In, in, a, in a very dry part of the world, there, there's going to be green pastures, and so your flock are going to be able to graze and be nourished, and as a result of that, they'll produce milk. Milk for the Israelites to drink, and, and milk for th- their young. So that those now, young cattle, those little kids and baby goats and calves will, will grow up and produce more milk of their own. And so, so, so your, 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 um, your cattle will, will grow. There'll be, there'll be plenty of milk. And it's, it's not just a, a land flowing with, with milk. It's also a land flowing with honey. The, the animals aren't just fruitful. The, the land will be literally fruitful, right? The, the, the picture here is that there's this fruit and this sweet nectar that, that will abound. The, the people of Israel will, will not lack that which is delicious and satisfying. But, but God goes even one step further, right? So he doesn't just want to bring them into a land of abundance. He wants them bring, bring them out of Egypt with an abundance. So, so look at verses 21 and 22. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who lives in her house for silver and gold, jewelry, and for clothing, clothing was very expensive back there. You only, often only had one outfit. And you shall put them on your sons and on your daughters. So you shall plunder the Egyptians. Remember, Israel has been enslaved for 400 years. 400 years of earning very little. Of, of living off of very little. Of, of saving very little, if anything at all. And so now God goes, before you leave the land, I want you to ask the Egyptians for some of their jewelry and clothes. Just, just ask. There's, look, there's no hint of robbery here. There's, there's, no, there's no threat. Again, look what it says. It says, each woman, verse 22, shall ask of her neighbor. It, it's specifically not supposed to be a show of force. There's not supposed to be any intimidation here. Like, hey, now, now's time. Give me your money, right? It's not, it's not going down. Like, this is just like, a, the, the language here is just God gives them favor. As though they've been like in these working relationships for maybe a, a long time now. And, and these other Egyptian women go like, yeah, here you go. Be blessed and go. 
And, and, and the point isn't just that, um, you know, these Israelites, uh, these, these Israeli women will walk out all, all blinged up in their, in their Prado or their, their Tiffany here. The, the point is, verse 22 says that um, you should put them on your sons and on your daughters. Right? I ask them for this, this jewelry, for these finances, for these clothes, for these shoes, for, for your kids. You're, you're going you're gonna to be on a long journey here through the wilderness to, to the promised land, and your kids need shoes to wear. They, they need clothes on their, on their backs. And then when you get into the land, if you're going to settle in that land, you're going to have the resources necessary to, to build a society and civilization. You're going to have to have some gold to trade with other people. You have, you have to buy things and buy resources. So, so I'm, I'm sending you on your way. I want to bless you. I want to bless you abundantly. Um. My, um, my wife is uh, amazing. Um, some of you know that. This is not about her. This is about me. Um, because sometimes it's hard to be married to a really great wife. Um, so particularly, my wife, is, is, she loves gifts. And she loves giving gifts. And this, this is hard. We've been married for 10 years now, and it's not, it's not easy. We, we just came out of um, Christmas, I feel like, and it's like December 26th, and she's going like, okay, whose birthday is it next? We just had Jesus' birthday. <laughs> Who's, whose birthday is it next? And she's, she's planning for my son's birthday, which is in February, um, and, and, and it's not just like that. It's not just his birthday this month. She's like, I'm going to give Valentine's gifts to my kids. And she does family day gifts to our kids. And then it's, and then it's his birthday. And he's going to get more yet. So, so February is the month we ruin our son. And he's just spoiled. And, and he will think, now this is the way life is. And it's not. And, um, and so I hope all of my kids uh, take after my wife like this so that their spouses can all be riddled with guilt for the rest of, of, the, of their lives. Um, but, but, but actually, man, um, my, wife, my wife is so much more godly than I am in certain ways. And I actually think in, in her love of giving gifts, she actually takes after our God. Our God loves to give good gifts to his children. And so he goes, Israel, you are my child. And so, so you know how I view you. I, I want you to be able to bless your own kids with gifts. It's not, it's not good enough. God's not satisfied enough to just save us, to just, to just rescue us from, from eternal damnation. He goes, no, I want to I bless you abundantly. I want to give you everlasting life. I want you to have a flourishing life. Ephesians 4, 8 says this. He says, when he ascended on high, that's Jesus, when he ascended on high, he, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. This, this is who our God is, give, give gifts to people. In the context of Ephesians there, the, those gifts are other people, m- mature people who are wise and, and godly, who, who can help us navigate the, the Christian journey. Man, if you are here and you've been a follower of Jesus for some, quite some time, you are a gift to so many people here. Well, one of the things that happens in, in church planning, we're, we're five months old as a church, is normally you get a whole bunch of young families and that's it. 
because young families, they are, they're mobile. They can switch it up. Their, their kids aren't going to be rem- remembering how traumatized this period of their life was. And so young families are, are very apt and quick to, to, to change and to, to be a part of something new. But for those of you who are more mature, man, we need you. We are, we are so thankful for, for your presence in our lives here. You need to hear there's something about your faithfulness and seeing the Lord's steadfastness in your life that it's a blessing to the rest of us young people. And by young, I just mean like if you're just like, if you're older than 40, like thank you. Thank, thank you for being here. You need to know how, how seriously, how, how much of a gift you are to us. We need to know that like, man, just seeing God in your life, we just need to know that like it's gonna be okay. And the Lord doesn't abandon his people. We need to hear like, hey, I know it's hard parenting right now. I know, I know work's hard right now. Just keep going. Persevere and, and let the Lord keep working in your life. So, so the Lord gives gifts to us in the form of other people, but he also, the Bible says, give gifts to every one, to one of us for the sake of other people. Every person is given a, a supernatural gift, a spiritual gift the Bible calls us. That, that when, when empowered by God, it builds up the church and, and helps us grow together. So God's given you gifts, gifts for yourself and gifts to use for the sake of others. We, we are God's children. And so he gives us all we need and more and more and more and more. Lastly, God is trustworthy because of his power, because of his power. Look at verses 19 and 20 again. But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless compelled by a mighty hand. So I will stretch out my hand and strike Egypt with all the wonders that I will do in it. After that, he will let you go. And I will give this people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. And when you go, you shall not go empty. I read a little further there, but that's okay. Um, in in um, that, that language of a, a mighty and outstretched arm, or a mighty and outstretched hand, that language actually originated in the nation of Egypt. That, that language comes from Egypt. That Pharaoh, what was often called the Lord of the Strong Hand. There's a, there's a picture on the screen. Um, this um, picture has a picture of Pharaoh, and you can't see the top of it because it's cut out, but his, his hand is, is outstretched. Th- that's a picture normally of how Pharaohs would have been displayed. This, this outstretched hand is a symbol of strength, and victory, and there was no equal. There was no one who could stop this hand of Pharaoh. And so God goes, okay, let, let me show you how strong my hand is. Let, let's have an arm wrestling contest and see whose outstretched arm prevails. And so to help Israel realize that it's actually in God's strength and and in his power that they should trust, um, God gives Moses three signs. 
Three signs. Now, signs uh, are not just parlor tricks. They're not just these like things you do at the pub and you amaze people and like, wow, that was, that was super cool. Thanks for showing me that. That's, that's neat. That, that's not the point. A, a sign, yes, it, 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 there's a display of power and wonder. It's supposed to captivate you in a way. It's supposed to draw you closer, but then it also points to something, right? It, it, it's, it's just that. It's a sign. It's supposed to tell you where to go, who, who to trust in. It's supposed to give us an indication of, of who God is. It's a, it's a pointer to God. So, so three signs here are given to Moses that, that tell us something about God. The first one, look, look at verses two to five of chapter four. So the Lord said to him, what is that in your hand? He's talking to Moses and Moses said, a staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground and it became a serpent and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it and it became a staff in his hand that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. On Pharaoh's crown, there was normally a, a cobra, a cobra that's kind of unfurled. It had a little bit of a raised hood and it was, be, it was kind of ready to strike uh, on the other people, right? That, that's how Pharaoh typically dressed. There was this urus, right? And, and there was a serpent there. And, and like the snake that Moses encounters here, um, Pharaoh is intending to intimidate and, and destroy and, and kill and so God, God tells Moses, Moses, throw down your stick. Throw, throw down your staff. So, so Moses throws down his, his, his staff, and then it becomes a serpent. Again, I just love verse 3. It says that he ran from it, like pulls up his little robe, and he's just like running away from it, which you have to think, this is a, a, a shepherd. He's just spent 40 years shepherding in the wilderness. I think he's, he's seen a, a snake or two. This must, must have been a, a terrifying snake. And then God goes, you know, go back to the snake and actually wants you to pick it up by its tail, which I, again, I'm no crocodile Dundee, but I know that you're not supposed to pick up a snake by its tail. It's foolish. It, it makes it angry and it makes you very vulnerable to being bitten and attacked. And God goes, no, no. When you're most vulnerable, pick it up. And so Moses picks up the, the snake by the tail, and it becomes a staff in his hand again. And the message that God's giving Moses is this. Look, as crazy as it may seem to actually go to Pharaoh right now and make him more angry, just like grabbing that snake by the tail, you, you need to know that Pharaoh is just an instrument in my hand. When, when I want you to pick up Pharaoh, man, you, there's nothing he can do to stop you. Pharaoh is a tool in my hand. I have authority over humanity, no matter how powerful or destructive they may seem. But, but God doesn't just have authority over humanity. He also has authority over nature itself. So verse 6 and 7 say this. Again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside the cloak put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. And then God said, put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. 
So, so God tells Moses to put his hand back in his cloak, but probably absolutely terrified right now. Like, what other animal am I going to be grabbing inside there? And actually, what he pulls out is far more frightening. He pulls out a hand all flaky, like, like white snow, and his hand is leprous. In that day, to, to have leprosy was a death sentence. When, when Moses pulls out his hand and sees leprosy, he knows I'm dead. That, that's the end of my life. There is no cure for this. Now, um, the Egyptians, right? The, the, the greatest scientists, had the greatest scientists of the time, had the greatest medicine of the day, and, and they, they threw a whole bunch of resources at trying to find a cure for leprosy. And do you know what they found? Nothing. No, no cure. And yet God goes, put your, put your hand inside your cloak. Pull it out. Leprosy. That's a death sentence. Now put, put it back inside your cloak. And take it out. And it's gone. God is telling Moses that he ultimately has authority over death. And that God ultimately is the one who can also give life. So he has authority over humanity, over authority over nature, over death and life itself. And then verse 8 and 9, we read this. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. If they will not believe even these two signs or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you shall take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. The Nile was the life of Egypt. Once a year, the Nile would swell and it would bring up about 30 feet high of black mud onto the land. That's, that mud is what nourished the crops. That's, that's what gave life to, to, to Egypt. The, the Nile was synonymous with, with Egypt. The Nile was synonymous with life. Egypt was known as the black land in what was otherwise a, a red land, a desert. The, the Nile, because of its ability to give life, became worshipped as a god itself. The Nile was called uh, the father of life, the mother of all, the manifestation of the god happy, the divine spirit that unceasingly blessed the land. And God goes, Moses, go, go, when you get back to Egypt, I want you to take a cup, grab some water from the Nile, still water, and then pour it out. And when it hits the land, it's going to turn to blood. You, you need to know that what you think, what those people think actually brings life is nothing. Man, all those gods are powerless compared to me. I have all authority. I have authority over humanity, over nature, and over all those other gods. So, so let, me, let me go back to the question we started with. What is it that is worthy of sacrifice? What, what is trustworthy? Uh, these signs, these three signs, are, are not the only signs we're given in the Bible. In fact, the, the Gospel of John in the New Testament, John actually organizes his Gospel around eight signs. 
He, he, there's these signs of feeding the 5,000, of, of turning water to wine, of, of walking on water, of healing a man born blind. He has these seven signs. And then the last sign is the resurrection itself, where Jesus dies on the cross and then comes back to life three days later. And, and God goes, trust in those signs. Tr- trust in me. Do you, don't you see that these are pointing the fact that I'm the one who's worthy of it all? that I have ultimate authority, but by, by dying and coming back to life, Jesus overcomes Satan. He, he disarms Satan, no longer giving Satan the power to condemn. Satan's called the God of this world, and God goes, I just destroyed Satan by dying on the cross. And despite dying on the cross, I walk out of my own tomb. I, I defeat death, and I actually can give life. And then once alive, Jesus goes, and I want you to have this gift. I want you to have this gift of the Holy Spirit so that wherever you go, you have my power living in you. Power to overcome, power to be a life-changing presence in this world. You want to know what I think is the most amazing bit about this whole passage? I think the best part about this passage is that God promises to do all these things for Israel God does all these things for Israel before any of them actually make a sacrifice. They didn't earn any of it. They didn't do a single thing to deserve all these blessings. All they had to do was believe. John 20, verse 30 and 31 says this. I'll end with these words. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these signs, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. Only God is great. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that we are drawn to trusting, to depending, to praising on a whole host of things other than you. God, and so would you enlarge our understanding of your greatness? Would you help us to grasp just how much you love us and you care about us? God, help us to believe in the fullest sense of that word. Not, not just to have the knowledge, but to then wholeheartedly like, live upon you and, and depend on you and rely on you for, for life, for forgiveness, and for all of other life's blessings. We pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. Amen.